Hi, I'm Scott Mitchell, the editor of 7am. Welcome to 7am's Summer Series, an exploration of big ideas with some of our favourite contributors and thinkers. This year has seen an explosion of TV and film releases, as sound stages fill with productions following the end of lockdowns that threatened the industry. But if you're anything like me this summer, you might just be taking a first breath and getting a chance to catch up on all the things you missed throughout the year. So with that in mind, we've invited writer and critic Clem Basto on to discuss some of her favourite releases. She'll be joined by the editor of The Monthly, Michael Williams, in a discussion that spans teen drama, The Church of Latter-day Saints, and yes, a Star Wars series that might just verge on being real prestige TV. We've kept it relatively spoiler-free, but be warned, there's a couple of moments we get close to the edge. So, over to Michael and Clem. Look, we are at the summary end of the year and one of the things that proliferates across media is people's best of lists. Everyone kind of obsessively saying the the best, the worst. All of us feel a bit overwhelmed by the sheer volume of what's available to watch, to read, to listen to. Um, The age of kind of cinema as distinct from TV seems to be behind us. So, Clem, you're one of the best-versed people I know in uh, all things cultural. So, Clem Basto... Talk us through some of your picks of 2022. It's been an interesting year because actually to that point that you just made about the distinction between cinema and TV, I think actually this year that the demarcation has um, become a bit more uh, noticeable in certain ways. So I think that the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the DC Cinema, you know, those types of products because I don't, you know, they're not really films, um, have kind of continued off in their own direction as almost a kind of discrete third type of screen media. Uh, but I think what's been really interesting is that there's been a real uh, sense of, you know, so-called prestige TV this year. There's been a lot of limited series as opposed to things that stretch on for, you know, possibly four seasons. Um, what we would have once called a miniseries. <laughs> I like that American uh, TV makers have finally understood the thing that uh, the Brits in particular were good at for years, which yes. is if you give something a finite life, then you have the capacity to genuinely surprise, genuinely take risks in the way that you tell a story. Absolutely. And one of the ones that really surprised me in particular because I'm not much of a true crime person was Under the Banner of Heaven. Uh, which is based on the book by John Cracker, which uh, looks at a series of murders within a, a sort of subset of the, the Church of Latter-day Saints um, in the 80s. Heavenly Father, we ask that we might be instruments in thy hand to fix what we find broken. In the name of Jesus Christ. It's written by Dustin Lance Black, who is an Oscar-winning screenwriter, but also has a history. So he he grew up Mormon. So that he has a really interesting personal connection to that world. And Andrew Garfield is getting to this point where he he's really cornering the market on people having a, a personal crisis, and in this case, a sort of crisis of faith. This goes beyond just a murder. Beyond everything I believe. He starts the show as this, you know, good, upstanding young Mormon man. He really believes um, in the church, in everything that he he sort of understands to be the Mormon way of life. And then, and then he's quite confronted by 
these acts that are being carried out essentially, you know, in line with what he discovers to be tenants that are built in at the ground level. And then he teams up with another detective played by Gil Birmingham, uh, who's Paiute man um, in the show. Gil Birmingham is a Comanche actor. And um, they have this very interesting odd couple relationship in that, you know, he has no interest in, in this world, which he sort of exists alongside of living in Utah. How many homicides have you processed before? I've seen more than I can count. And I thought it was high time that we start following a normal order of operations. I was waiting until I had every question at the ready so I didn't have to call him twice. I asked you to knock on doors and find me Lafferty's and that's all. There's 10 new Lafferty's every split of their damn family tree. Welcome to Mormondom. You're not in Vegas anymore, pal. And you are not in charge here. Detective, I'm well aware my skin is darker than most in this valley. What? And I'm very well aware that's not smiled upon in a 99% LDS town. Oh, come But on. I know cases like this a hell of a lot better than you do. Right now... Typically, mm. I find there's a kind of prurience to true crime, and even when it uh, manages to elevate it to wonderful storytelling, uh, subjecting lived experience to the kind of forces of narrative and forces of genre narrative in particular uh, can have an incredibly kind of deadening effect on the victims of crime, yeah. on, on the ways in which the story is told. This one transcends those risks? I think it did. And I think that it did that by focusing on what was lost uh, and the impact on the people who, you know, are, are grieving the loss of this character in the show. There were a couple of people who were doing review slash recaps who were also, you know, previously of the Mormon faith. And it was really interesting to read their insights into how they felt the show examined that belief structure. It's not one I'm familiar with. You know, I've been to Utah. That's about the extent of it. I've driven through Salt Lake City. Um, so it is this fascinating kind of, you know, other, I guess. And I think they did it really delicately. I think Pyrie's character is not so good that it sort of feels like a get out of jail free card, well, you know, not hashtag not all Mormons. Like, I think it had really interesting things to say about faith structures, religious organisations, and particularly their relationship to gender politics. Look, it's nice to know that things exist that aren't Marvel, Disney or Star Wars. It is, although I would also say that possibly the best television show of the year is a Star Wars property, and it is also on Disney+. Plus. So. Okay, so I'm, I'm excited to hear your thoughts on this. It's not the Obi-Wan Kenobi show, it is Andor. It is Andor, which is created by Tony Gilroy, who most people I think would know as the creator of uh, The Bourne films with Born Identity. God, it's just so good. Cassian Ander, the Empire is choking us so slowly. We're starting not to notice. What I'm asking is this. Wouldn't you rather give it all to something real? There's not a lot of discussion of the things that we've come to expect from Star Wars, which are, you know, Jedi's the Force, where are you going to get a crystal for your lightsaber? And instead it's this show essentially about kind of armed revolution against fascism. To steal from the Empire? What do you need? A uniform, some dirty hands and an Imperial toolkit? <laughs> They're so proud of themselves, they don't even care. They're so fat and satisfied, they can't imagine it. Can't imagine what? That someone like me would ever get inside their house, walk their floors, spit in their food, take their gear. The arrogance is remarkable, isn't it? And I think what it does really, really well is make 
fascism seem bad again. So one of the tricky things about Star Wars and particularly Star Wars fandom is that traditionally the Empire have had the cool gear, they've had the better spaceships, you know, the the great costumes. I've been involved in the past with Star Wars costuming groups and they tend to lean towards the bad guys' side. But I think, you know, in this era where actual Nazis uh, are present in our world, not just in our discourse, I think it is a really powerful thing that Andor is doing to make them seem actually not kind of incompetent and funny. You know, Tony Gilroy is uh, an incredible writer of dialogue and I think where this show really shines and where it makes its point is in these scenes where they discuss their grab for ultimate power, which is expressed in this, you know, it's very much a kind of banality of evil situation. What do we do here? Sir? What is our purpose, Legrette? On our Vala 6? I open the question to the room. What do we do in this building? Why are we here? Anyone? We're here to further security objectives by collecting intelligence, providing useful analysis and conducting effective covert action, sir. Very good, Dedra. That is verbatim from the ISB mission statement and wrong. Security is an illusion. You want security? Call the Navy. Launch a regiment of troopers. We are health care providers. We treat sickness. We identify symptoms. We locate germs, whether they arise from within or have come from the outside. The longer we wait to identify a disorder, the harder it is to treat the disease. Do you understand my meaning, Legret? Yes, sir. I do think it fulfills the promise that has been talked about with the Star Wars franchise about taking the galaxy, taking the aesthetic, the Mm. kind of trappings, and telling different stories in that space. And as a self-contained story... Um, Self-contained to a point. I mean, this is a prequel to a prequel, which means that uh, there's not a lot of kind of dramatic uncertainty about where this thing is wrapping up. So it has to kind of live or breathe on the interactions on the screen. Yeah, and I think that strength of those characters and, you know, what it's saying thematically is what works so well because you're right. We know, um, sorry to everybody who has not seen Rogue One, that there is a full stop on Cassian Andor's story. We know that it's building towards the construction of the Death Star. And so what they do in the kind of shadow of that enormous bit of what we might call plot armour for that character, I think is really remarkable. It's very tense. You know, I had to keep reminding myself, it's all right, he's, you know, he'll get out of this. Um, It's all right, he's already dead. Much. I, I, I'm going to lean straight into Look, that spoiler what's the there. statute of limitations on spoilers? I forgot how much I hated it here. Honey, we're home. Yeah, but still no halves. You actually going to speak to him this year? Nah, just playing it cool. Speaking of everything familiar being new again, one of the things uh, rebooted, resurrected, dragged out from its grave uh, this year was Heartbreak High. And what a surprise. I was uh, a huge fan of the original. And so my concern going into Heartbreak High, which was um, rebooted and created for Netflix by Hannah Carroll Chapman, was that it would be a kind of legacy, isn't this nice for all the 40-year-olds to kind of reconnect with their youth, Um, And they did absolutely the right thing, which was make a heartbreak high for today's youth. What happened? Our friendship was perfect and it just fucking blew up into nothing. Dude, everyone's pissed. You broke people up, outed people. That's not a reason to dump me. Oi, hello, didn't you hear? There are a couple of, you know, legacy moments sprinkled throughout, but I think what they've done is take that setting of a, you know, much more diverse, I would say. I mean, I think Heartbreak High for its time was really impressive with what they did. 
um, from a class perspective in particular. But, you know, this one is much more diverse, you know, in terms of gender, in terms of sexuality, in terms of people's, you know, racial identities. Um, And so I think that they have really done something special. And for me, you know, personally, as an autistic person, I'm particularly thrilled with the way they've handled the character of Quinny, who I think has been one of the kind of breakout um, stars, played by Chloe Hayden, who is also autistic. It's just been a real delight watching the show become such a, a hit globally and for that character to speak to, you know, young autistic and neurodivergent people who are seeing themselves reflected in a way that feels more nuanced than, you know, what until recently has still been very much in the kind of Rain Man slash Big Bang Theory ballpark. Hey, I thought you liked me. I do like you. Well, then why did you act like you didn't? I didn't mean to. It just happens to me sometimes. I freeze up and I forget how to speak and it just happens when I'm stressed out. Oh, I stress you out. No, you don't stress me out. You make me anxious and so excited. Well, and You could try showing it instead of acting like I bore the you shit out of you. You don't bore me. I- really? Really, because the entire night your face was like, like you couldn't even. Look I'm at autistic. Me. Okay. Right. Yeah, I'm autistic. I have autism. Whatever you want to say. No, but how did I not know this? I'm pretty good at masking, putting on a face, pretending, most of the time. It's another example of one where the pre-existing property, the nostalgia, might have been enough to get a green lit as a mm. show, but the actual end product had very little to do with that. You yeah. Know, the, its great strength, I think, is an authenticity of voice and a kind of seriousness of intent. It wants to tell a story in its own right rather than just a nod to making those of us who vaguely remember seeing <laughs> Abby Tucker rap. <laughs> Um, or Drazik making Anita shoplift um, menthol cigarettes. Yeah, oh, quality, quality storytelling. <laughs> it, it, you know, like it, it did drive me back to watch a couple of episodes of the earlier series and that didn't stand up at all. You know, my yeah. memory, my nostalgia, um, that was something that's time had passed. But if a pre-existing name is what it takes to get a show made, then, you know. Yeah, well, I think like some of the other more successful, you know, reboots and reimaginings, that's what this does well. It's got that recognition factor. You know, I choke as I say that phrase. Um, But it is something new within that, if you like, the Hartley High universe. Um, So it's just the school uh, with the sort of attendant um, problems and, and, and joys that come along with that. Pretty sure at this point it's the Hartley High multiverse, Sorry. but that's okay. I mean, there, there are many <laughs> strands, many but strands I, to this. I mean, story. I just think it's a testament to they did a really good job of uh, inviting in a really diverse writer's room, and I think that's reflected in the end product. And I know that they collaborated also with the actors. So, you know, the actors who were playing um, certain characters who may have had similar lived experience themselves are able to kind of sound off and say, I don't feel like this character would say that or, you know, when I've been in a situation like that, it's been, you know, X, Y, Z. And I think that that shows in the end product, which is um, such a, you know, it's, it's heartfelt. Like, I, it feels sincere. We'll be back in a moment. As a 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day summarising each of their key points with links to full articles from a range of sources. Get the news you need to your inbox every weekday morning with Post. Sign up at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. For Sloane Crosley, writing about the loss of a friend may not have provided catharsis, but it did allow for the possibility of a better ending. 
Like you have this amazing meal that's this friendship and then you have a really, 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 really bad dessert with shards of glass in it. And then like the book is like, you know, those little chunks of chocolate that come with the bill. I'm Michael Williams. Join me for this week's episode of Read This as I talk to Sloane Crosley about her latest Grief is for People. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Your next pick, Clem. Well, my next pick is a surprise. Um, I suppose for some people, it's Jackass Forever, directed <laughs> by Jeff Tremaine. Hello, I'm Johnny Knoxville. Welcome to Jackass. A lot of people ask, what will Jackass be like once we're older? Well, it'll get more mature. So the Jackass crew, at this point, how old are they? They're like 50, pushing 60. Oh, pushing you know. 60, definitely. Um, they've been kicking each other in the nuts for decades. And it is just, you know, I think that a lot has been written about Jackass, particularly when they were working with Spike Jones, because I feel like people feel he sort of legitimised what they were doing and what CKY had done on TV before them, which is stunt-slash-prank-based shows. Lots have been written about it in a kind of post-9-11, blah, 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 blah. You know, you can go to your local research repository and <laughs> waste a couple of hours. But I think... Um, Pause the podcast first. <laughs> that's go right. Go do your research. Come back to us. <laughs> but I think what is really beautiful about Jackass Forever is that it comes at a time where, in, in many ways, a lot of people, I think, feel like the world is ending. You know, there's a definite sense of... Our time is running out. You know, we're imperiled on a daily basis. We've just been, well, we're still going through this big, huge existential challenge of the pandemic sprinkled with, you know, possible war, nuclear annihilation, climate catastrophe. And so I think what this film does and what they've always done is it's a sort of celebration of life in the face of death. Um, They're doing these sometimes very stupid um, other times, very dangerous things. You know, being in a room with a bear, like being blown up in a in a portal loop. You said it wasn't going to feel like anything. Concussions aren't great, but as long as you have them before you're 50, it's cool. And Knoxville's 49, so we're good. I think that the sort of catharsis of that is really moving, and I was really struck by it. Again, I saw it in a cinema with a bunch of other people, and um, I think everybody had a reaction which was not quite what people who are unfamiliar with Jackass or sort of know it only as it's kind of, you know, cultural 25 words or less version would be quite surprised by. It's a very moving film. You know, I found myself really buoyed by the end of it, but I felt like, yeah, it's quite poignant as well. Wait, you're selling Jackass forever as a stirring meditation (laughs) on mortality. I am. Okay. It crescendos and there's like a centrifuge, everybody's vomiting different colours, there's an air raid. It's fantastic. Honestly. it's uh, (laughs) No, that that sounds like a stirring meditation on mortality. If you want to see people in their 60s who have been kicking each (laughs) other in the balls uh, for decades and Australian federal politics doesn't do it for you. Here's your next option. Exactly. You still got those million dollar teeth, that's for sure. <laughs> what's your next pick? My next pick is a very original film. Uh, and I think what's been interesting this year is that there has been not much daylight between what we would call, you know, independent slash alternative filmmaking and the megaplex movies. And one small picture which really uh, just was an absolute huge runaway hit this year was Everything, Everywhere, All at Once uh, by Daniels. And it is incredible. I'm not your husband. I'm another version of I'm from another universe. I'm here because we need your help. Very busy today. I'm so tired to help you. Across the multiverse, I've seen thousands of Evelyns. 
it's kind of hard to explain. It's a multiversal film. And the multiverse has been, I think, gaining traction as a storytelling device. You know, just this year alone, it was used in Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. And it was used in the Scarlet Witch TV show. It's been um, very much a kind of storytelling device du jour. But I think what Daniels do in Everything Everywhere All at Once is realise the potential of that storytelling conceit to wrestle with a number of themes, intergenerational trauma, the immigrant experience in America, the Asian-American immigrant experience, um, you know, queer issues. And it's also just really incredibly fun. No, he doesn't have to stay. Who's he? Becky. Becky's a she. You know me, I always make up he, she. In Chinese, just one word, ta, so easy. And the way you two are dressed, I'm sure I'm not the only one calling him he. I mean her, him, I. Anyways, my English is fine. And we have Google, so you don't have to come and be a translator. huh? You stay here and she can cook it. Look, I honestly think it's weird, okay? But Becky wants to help. Right, Becky? I always learn something when I hang out with the elderly. Old people are very wise. Hmm. It's okay. We'll take Hong Kong with us to the meeting. It focuses on this family, um, the mum played by Michelle Yeoh, and... Um, her husband, played by Ki Hai Kwan from originally, you know, he was the cute little kid in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and the Goonies. And then he just didn't get any more work because there weren't any roles for Asian-American men. So he's kind of been sitting in the background all this time. And he just, his perform. I mean, everybody is great. I don't want to, um, you know, take away from the other performances, but his role is so interesting because he's introduced as this you know, embarrassing husband. You know, he wears a bum bag, he wears tracksuit pants, he's kind of everything that this woman is trying to escape. Uh, And the development that his character goes through is so striking and he's he just is, you know, he's an action superstar, he's a romantic hero, he's also the daggy dad. Like, he's... It's just such a beautiful moment. And I think, you know, Hollywood always loves a comeback story, but I think this one is particularly potent. It was one of the happiest reading I've ever done because... Uh, it featured uh, a Chinese family. And uh-huh. it was the script that I wanted to read for many, many, many years. Uh, it, it, it just didn't exist before. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when this came upon, I wanted to be a part of this project so badly uh, because I think, you know, it's not only is it a beautifully written script, but to, to work with the Michelle Yeoh, the Jamie Lee Curtis, James Ha. I mean, it was, it was incredible. One of the things that struck me about it, I loved it as well, and it was one of the few films I saw in the cinema this year that wasn't aimed at my 10- and 12-year-old. Um, <laughs> it felt very much like a film that sprung out of the pandemic. It's quite, mm. you know, a limited number of uh, sets that it uses, a tiny cast. Um, it's in many ways, despite its kind of epic sci-fi scope, a uh, surprisingly intimate uh, kind of story. Yeah. Um, do you think the rise in multiverse stories is a reflection of us culturally feeling trapped where we are? Ooh. I mean, I've read some interesting analysis of multiversal storytelling being specifically about trauma, that it's almost as a, a therapeutic tool. Um, I guess it's similar to, you know, some of the research that's happening around psychedelic use in persistent depressive illnesses in that it allows you to see that there are actually other, you know, other options. And so the the twist is often that, you know, for example, in Doctor Strange, you know, that in every multiverse the same thing keeps happening. You know, you can't escape your your fate. Uh, And I think what's really beautiful about everything everywhere all at once and to a lesser extent 
multiverse of madness is in recognising how things can be different. And, you know, I don't want to give it away because I think it's such a beautiful reveal in that film. Uh, but, yeah, I, it's interesting. It, it is definitely a sort of collective unconscious thing that has happened in the last few years. I also think as a backdrop for storytelling, it's an interesting one because uh, what you need to demonstrate as a filmmaker, either in the script, in your direction, is the imagination to genuinely create the idea of limitless possibility. Yeah. You know, Terry Pratchett, when he wrote about the multiverse, wrote about the trousers of time, that you just go up a different leg. Each choice you make <laughs> goes up a different leg. And there's something kind of reassuringly kind of static about just branching off two ways. Mm. Uh, the thing about the films that you're mentioning is they need at some point to demonstrate that the filmmaker's imagination is wilder than its audiences. And yeah. I think it meets that task. It definitely does. And I think they're interesting companion pieces because if you look at Multiverse of Madness, which is directed by Sam Raimi, who's a very inventive filmmaker, he's ultimately constrained by the context within which he's working. So there's kind of really only four multiverse. You know, they, they quickly go through about 27. But uh, but within everything, everywhere, all at once, you really get that sense of infinite possibility. Um, and I think it's a very healing film. I know it has been for a lot of people and it's just a real blast. It, it's been a long time since... I think what, you know, Andor gives is a prestige sci-fi experience within a world that we already know. I think what was fascinating about everything, everywhere, all at once is it just felt so new. And when was the last time you can remember going to see a science fiction film that didn't feel like or wasn't, you know, a reboot uh, or a reimagining or a kind of facsimile of something we sort of knew already. Well, I think if we know anything about the way entertainment works is that people learn the wrong lessons from both success <laughs> and failure. So there'll be surprises, there'll be familiar things made fresh again, but thank you for bringing us up to speed on 2022, Clem. It's been great to chat. Thank you for having me. With award-winning news coverage and reviews, the Saturday paper is essential reading for everybody. For a limited time, subscribe to a year of our quality, independent journalism, and you'll receive the Saturday paper's stainless steel coffee cup, made in collaboration with Fresco, for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. The Saturday paper. No hot takes.